You know, if you think about it, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the most humbling, pride-shattering event in human history. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is the most humbling, pride-shattering event in human history. And you remember what the incarnation is. It's when God became a man. When God entered into history as a literal, historical human being. That without ever ceasing to be fully God, he became fully man. That is the incarnation. And that is the most humbling, pride-shattering event in human history. And the reason for that is because the incarnation is proof that we could do absolutely nothing to save ourselves. I mean, think about it. The, the incarnation shatters all of our ridiculous notions that we could ever have to do anything to accomplish our own salvation. The fact that God had to come to earth to save us rebukes our grand delusions that we have about our own abilities to accomplish our own redemption. Think about it. God the Son did not wait for us to come to Him, but instead pierced the darkness to come to us. Nobody. Nobody was knocking on the gates of heaven asking for a Savior to come. No, that Savior had to come without our consent and without our invitation to free us from the chains of our sin. Don't you see? God became a man to do for man what man could not do for himself. And what man could not do for himself was save himself from eternal woe. And despair. That is the mission of the Messiah. That is why he came. And that global, cosmic mission to save sinners from eternal destruction is exactly what we see in our text this morning. And I think what you're going to find most surprising. Refreshing and maybe even a little bit shocking is not so much that Christ describes his mission to save sinners, which he does, but it's that how he describes how he feels about his mission to save sinners. You see, that's the surprising part because get this, he calls his mission to redeem sinners. He calls it food. He calls it food. In other words, a feast, a banquet, a meal, dessert, a delight, that which satisfies the soul, that which, that which brings him joy. In other words, he loves to rescue slaves from the clutches of spiritual darkness. It is a delight to Jesus Christ to deliver hell-deserving sinners from every nation, from the chains of their sin. In other words, Christ is not some professional hired gun doing it for the pay plucking souls from the flames was not some chafing inconvenience that got in the way of what he really wanted to do. No, it was exactly what he wanted to do. And what you're about to see is one of the greatest revivals ever to take place in human history. And you remember the scene, Christ has been engaging in this riveting salvation conversation with one of the most despicable sinners in all of Samaria, the woman at the well, you remember her, the social and moral outcast of the entire city. Why? Because she was a five-time divorcee with, who was currently sleeping with some deadbeat who wasn't even her husband. Her whole life had been this train wreck of, of bad decisions and broken relationships, and, and yet when Christ met her on that day, he offered her the very thing for which she had been looking her entire life long, namely that which fulfills the deepest longings of her soul, which just happened to be standing in front of her face. And when he spilled the beans that he was the Messiah, the long-awaited king and redeemer and savior and Messiah, it was all over, that's it. <laughs> She leaves the scene, runs into the city, and she got the whole village to come out and meet this Jewish stranger who just, who just claimed to be the Messiah. And when they got there, almost every single person in the entire village got saved. It was a harvest of Samaritan souls. Hundreds and hundreds of people were plucked from the flames on that day. 
So here's the thing. Just before they arrive and get saved, Christ, it's in that moment that Christ unfolded for his rookie disciples, not merely his mission to save sinners, but even more than that, the joy that he has in completing that mission. That's exactly where we're going this morning. The joy of Jesus Christ to finish the mission now given to the church, otherwise known as the Great Commission. And that's exactly why we're doing this missions series. Impossible end. Yes, it is impossible for us as fallen, fragile, fallible people, but it is invincible for the one who is building the church, the one who is the Lord of the church, the one who is the king, the one who purchased and paid for souls from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. It is an invincible mission. It cannot fail. It is guaranteed to happen. And all I want for you, all I want for you from this five-week series on missions is that the global cause of God would be the thrill of your soul and the joy of your heart and the passion of your life, whether you stay or you go. And the best way to do that, the best way, the only way to create that authentic mission passions is to unfold the sacred text of Scripture and see the glory on the page. So here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text seven compelling motivations. Seven compelling motivations to finish the mission from the Father to reach the nations. That's where we're going. Seven compelling motivations to finish the mission from the Father to reach the nations. Yet, before we see even one of those motivations, let's go to the scene, shall we? And let's watch one of the greatest revivals in redemptive history. Let's begin first with the publicity by the woman. The publicity by the woman in verses 27 through 30. Now, you know, we're parachuting right in the middle of the chapter. But you remember, you remember, don't you, what has transpired in verses 1 through 26? Christ did the absolutely unthinkable, and he passes... Samaria on his way to Galilee and in Samaria he encountered one of the most unlikely women in the world ever to become a worshiper and the reason for that is because this woman that he encountered was the scarlet woman damaged goods the chick with the past the bimbo down the street you remember this the social and moral outcast of the entire city her whole life had been this wreck of adulteries and divorces and decades of ruined relationships. And when Christ met her on that day, she was living in open sexual immorality, shacking up with some guy who wasn't even her husband. And again, it's not that these things didn't matter. They profoundly did matter. It's just that they did not keep the great soul hunter, Jesus Christ, from inviting her to the feast of worship. And you remember, their conversation is this thrilling back and forth saga about what it is that truly satisfies the soul and what authentic worship actually is. And the woman is totally confused. And so she said, 25, look at the text. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah, who is called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain all things to us. And honestly, I can't tell. I can't tell if she's being cynical or hopeful here. With a smile on her face, is she saying, well, whatever guy. And well, you, so you say, but when the Messiah comes, then we'll see who's right, shall we? Or, with hope in her soul, is she saying, this is life-changing for me. And I don't necessarily know how to process everything you just said to me, but one thing I do know is that the Messiah is going to come, and when he comes, he will settle this once and for all, to which Christ replies in verse 26, ma'am, I just did settle this because I am the Messiah. And here's the thing. At that exact, precise moment when Christ declared his identity as the king and redeemer and Messiah to come and make all things right at that exact moment. The disciples show up to the scene. Look at verse 27. 
And at this moment, his disciples came. And the Greek text says they were marveling because he was speaking with a woman. And yet no one said, what are you seeking? Or why are you speaking with her? So think about this. When the disciples last saw Christ, the last time they saw him, he was all by himself at the well. But now they show up with their groceries and their shopping bags because they went into town to buy food. And now they find that he was not alone. And not only was he not alone, but he was doing something absolutely scandalous. He was talking to a woman, but he wasn't sexually harassing her or asking her out on a date. Instead, they show up to hear him declaring to her that he is the Messiah to a woman, to a Samaritan woman, no less. And it was an outrage, and you can see it in the text. John says that the disciples were marveling that he was speaking with a woman. Why? Because you don't do that. You have to understand, in first century Israel, men's overly self-righteous attempts to, to be pure wound up meaning that they would treat women like biohazardous materials to be avoided and ignored. You have to understand, every cultural custom and protocol is violated here. But guess who gives a rip about any of that? It's not Christ. Because what's at stake here is the soul of a sinner who desperately needs salvation. And John notes that he and the other disciples are just dying to interrupt this conversation. They wanted to intervene and ask the woman, um, I'm sorry, what do you think you're doing talking to our rabbi? And they wanted to intervene and ask their rabbi, what do you think you're doing talking to a Samaritan woman? Have you lost your mind? They wanted to do that. But they wisely bite their tongues. In verse 28, notice, all of a sudden, she leaves. She, she just flees the scene. She never actually got her water for the day, which is the, the very reason why she showed up to the well in the first place. And so she leaves without, and without even responding to Christ's claim to be the Messiah, she runs back off into the city. Why? Because now everything is different. Everything has changed. I mean, if what this stranger said was true, and he really is the long-awaited redeemer and Messiah and king. And if he is inviting her out of all people to dine at the feast of worship, then everything has changed. She has literally had her entire life turned upside down. And so what does she do? Verse 28, she goes public with her new discovery. She runs back into the city and stops by construction sites and interrupts workers in the middle of their lunch break. She runs to the marketplace and where people are doing their shopping. She interrupts business meetings and runs into stores and coffee shops and restaurants and anyone that she can find. And what does she say? Verse 29, and you can hear the passion, the urgency in her voice, come and see. Come and see. Come and see what? A man who has told me everything I have done. This was a risk for her, you understand, going public like that. Normally she kept out of public view. Normally she preferred to go unnoticed, which is why she came to the well at the time when she did, because no one else would be there. And you notice that she begins, she opens up with not I have found the Christ. She doesn't open with that. Rather, she opens, come and behold a man who has told me everything I have done. Why would she do that? Why would she not open with the most important part, I have found the Messiah? Why would she open up with this? Well, the reason why is because she had no credibility. I mean, who's going to listen to her? I mean, if the crazy cat lady who eats out of garbage bins tells you that she has a chest of Aztec gold at her house and would you like some? I'm still not coming over. <laughs> She's got to give me some evidence to persuade me. That's exactly what this is. And again, this is a real risk. People could have said to her, big deal, lady. Everybody knows your secrets. Everybody knows your, your scandals. Everybody here has smelled your dirty laundry, lady. No, I know this is different. This is different. Come out here and meet this Jewish stranger who's not from around here, who I've never met before in my life, and yet he knew everything I had done. All my marriages, my divorces, my scandals, my current live-in boyfriend, he knew everything that I had done for decades. 
that does change things. And look very carefully. Your English Bibles not, might not capture the nuance that the Greek does have, and, it, and I wish it was translated this way, but literally she asks, this is not the Christ, is it? That's what she asks. This is not the Christ, is it? I don't have a chest of Aztec gold at my house. Do I? See what she does here? It's very clever. It's very, very clever. And you notice that she's not saying that he's not the Messiah necessarily. She's also not saying that he is. She's simply enticing them to come and find out for themselves. You see what she does? She creates a sense of curiosity and, and suspense and intrigue that provokes the people of the city to come out to the well and to find out for themselves. I mean, could it be? Could it be that the great serpent crusher, that the eternal king from David's line, the long-awaited redeemer and savior and the Messiah is waiting out there for us? It's whatever she did, it worked. Verse 30, the people of the town, they leave their shops and their mills and their factories and their stores and their plates with unfinished food to follow the most notorious sinner in the city to the well to meet this stranger who may or may not be the Messiah. Which brings us next to the profound joy to finish the mission. First we saw the publicity by the woman, now we see the profound joy to finish the mission. And here's the thing. While all of this is transpiring, the woman in the city recruiting people to come out to the well and meet this Jewish stranger, during that whole time, watch what has been transpiring in verses 31 and 32. Meanwhile, it says, the disciples were asking him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat about which you know nothing. This is really interesting. The whole time that this woman is gathering this crowd to come out and meet Christ, the disciples are there. They've opened up their groceries and their bags of food and bags of chips, and they've gotten their bread and sandwich meat and making their sandwiches, and they're sitting there eating, and they look over and they notice that Christ is not eating. He's just sitting there thinking, contemplating something, refusing to eat. And what's interesting is the Greek grammar indicates with its verb tense that they kept asking him again and again and again, urging him to eat. Rabbi, eat. Uh, Rabbi, are you going to eat with us? Rabbi, what are you doing? Is it, it's, it's time to eat now. And over and over again, he refused. Until finally he does that thing where he speaks in a cryptic and mysterious way and he pauses and he says, okay, hold on. I have food to eat about which you know nothing. And so you see what he's done, don't you? He's being deliberately mysterious and in raising a level of intrigue with his disciples, exactly like the woman did in the city. In other words, he's baiting them with a little drama and suspense because he's about to teach his rookie disciples something profound about himself and something profound about the mission to which you and I and they were called. And this statement that he makes, I have to eat about which you know nothing can mean only one of two things. Either number one, he has a secret stash of food that he eats behind their backs when they're not looking. Or two, there is a food of a different kind that sustains and nourishes and satisfies his soul. There is a kind of banquet a gourmet feast, if you will, that, that nourishes and sustains him physically, just like physical food does literally. And as we're about to see, that's precisely what he means. But the disciples, understandably, and as usual, were baffled. Look at verse 33. The disciples were saying, therefore, to one another, no one has brought him food to eat, have they? I mean, again, Christ is refusing to eat. He already ha he's already had this secret gourmet feast that none of them knows about. And yet, instead of asking him what they mean, what he means, they instead exchange confused looks with one another and shrug their shoulders and have these sort of whispered conversations off to the side behind his back. Do, do you know what he's talking about? I have no idea. Do you? <sighs> Not a clue. Did someone come here and, and bring him food? I don't know. I don't know what's going on as usual. 
And you can see why they're confused, right? They have just been on that day. If you look at the whole chapter, they have just been on a six-hour, 20-mile hike. And the last time they saw Christ, before they went into the city, he was thirsty and fatigued with blisters and exhaustion. And now they find him refreshed and satisfied and refusing to eat. What happened to him when they were gone? When, he, when they, were gone? they have no explanation. And so Christ lets the guessing game go on for a few minutes until he eventually... <clears throat> intervenes and pulls back the curtain and reveals the meaning of his parable, which is staggering and profound. Look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food, my feast, my banquet, my meal is that I should do the will of the one who sent me and I should complete his work. And there it is. His food and his feast that brings him satisfaction is to do the will of the Father and to complete his work. And notice very carefully what it does not say. My duty, my burden, my obligation, or even my responsibility, but my food, my feast, my banquet, my meal, my dessert, my delight is to do the will and work of the Father and to complete what He has given me to do. Meaning what? Meaning nothing gives me greater joy than to do the will of the one who sent me. Nothing. Nothing gives me greater satisfaction than to complete the work of the Father. And yet the question is, what, what does this mean? What is the will and work of the Father? And, and what does it mean for Christ to complete it? And what does it mean that it's a feast that satisfies his soul? Well, what is he talking about? And the context gives it all away, doesn't it? I mean, Christ was just doing what five minutes ago? Talking to an unsaved, unbelieving Samaritan woman about what? About eternal life. And in the very next verse, he is about to talk about saving souls from every nation and granting them access to eternal life, which means the will and work of the Father is the plan of salvation to save perishing people from every nation and grant them eternal life through the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. That is the work and the will of the Father. That's what he's talking about. This is the global missionary plan to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That is the feast and the banquet and the meal and the dessert of Jesus Christ to complete that. That is the food that fed his soul. That's what he means. What that means is Christ loves. He loves to save hell-deserving sinners. It is his delight to deliver slaves from the clutches of spiritual darkness. He loves to infiltrate the darkness and invade enemy lines and save those who are held captive to the evil one. This is his food, his feast, his delight. This is his meal. And so my question is, is there anyone out here this morning still needs to be rescued? Do you know anyone in your life who still needs to be rescued? Is there anyone here still held captive in the chains of their sin? Do you know anyone held captive by the chains of their sin? Don't you see it's not merely that Christ can save them that saving them would be his deepest joy and delight. And so to the Christians here in this room, I just ask you, can you not see the implications of what Christ is saying here? It is a feast to tell sinners 
about Jesus Christ. It, it was a feast for Christ to tell sinners about himself. It was a delight for him to put his infinite worth on display. The implication is when you participate in the Father's mission to save perishing people, when you join him in his global plan to win the nations, in other words, when you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is a feast and a delight that fulfills the soul. The question is, is it a feast and a delight for your soul? Is it a delight to you to deliver the good news about Jesus Christ to those in your life whose souls are hanging by a thread, slender thread over the gaping jaws of eternal hell? Is it your delectable desert to declare the endless riches of Jesus Christ to ruin sinners? Or is it more of a distasteful obligation? Is it more of a burden or blessing? And if it's more of drudgery than a delight, if it's more of a burden than a blessing, there could be several reasons for that. And although there is one path to take at this point, I, we, could, we could guilt you into wanting to do evangelism. That is one way to do it, but I would rather inspire you instead. I would rather compel you instead. I would rather have you feel the urgency and passion to share the gospel instead. And so here are free of charge some motivations to proclaim the gospel to perishing people. These may or may not be in your notes. I can't remember. Here they are. Number one, here's a motivation to share the gospel. Most people, most Christians do not enjoy the feast of gospel proclamation simply because never actually tasted it. Meaning they've never actually shared the gospel with anyone. Bits and pieces illusions here and there about attending church. But they've never looked a sinner in the eyes and spoken to them about their eternal souls and the slavery of sin and the justice of hell and the glory of a Messiah who has come to save sinners from their eternal plight of doom and despair. They've, most Christians have never actually done that. And therefore, they don't know how sweet it is, how delectable to the soul it is to declare the gospel to perishing people. The point is, you can't taste the sweetness of gospel proclamation until you actually taste and do gospel proclamation. You do not like it, so you say, try it, try it, and you may. Number two, the best evangelist in the world are not necessarily those who are the best speakers, those who have theological degrees, those who are the most intelligent, the most who, those who are most skilled at defending their faith. No, they are not necessarily the best evangelists. Rather, those who are infatuated by Jesus Christ and everything he accomplished, they are the best evangelists, always. Mark my words, you grow in your admiration and your affection for Jesus Christ and everything that he accomplished, and you will be fearless and unstoppable. Because the more you delight in him, the more you will declare him. The more you are enthralled by him, the more you will evangelize him. The more you prize him, the more you will go public about him. Mark my words. Number three, remember, never forget that the temporary comforts that you forsake in the moment when trying to engage a lost person about the gospel cannot be compared to the eternal comforts that you will experience in heaven when you get there. And the reason why I bring this up is because to share the gospel, it's awkward. Every time it feels like for me, it's kind of painful. It's kind of feels vulnerable. I never feel like I hit it out of the ballpark. I never feel like I say it just right. I feel like I just, I kind of, kind of stumble and don't quite know how to answer their questions. And it's like, oh, is this even worth it? And yet, and yet, when you get to paradise and be with Christ, are you even going to care? When you get there, are you even going to care? No. Instead, we will look back on a lifetime of blown, missed opportunities with shame 
because we cared so much about our temporary comforts and convenience. Instead, we need to look through life through the lenses of eternity because then we will see that we have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Number four. Another way to inspire you to share the gospel. Number four, the more persecution you endure for the gospel, and mark my words, you will suffer persecution. That's just just bound to happen. You feel it, right? You feel that it's coming. The more suffering and persecution you endure for the gospel, the more God will reward you for being persecuted. That's a fact. That's a fact, which sounds crazy, right? But it's true. More suffering for Christ equals more reward. I'm not making this up. Listen to Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Christ says, blessed, literally happy, are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed, happy are you whenever they reproach you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. The point is they can take your freedom and they might. They could take your house And they might, they could take your job, and that's a possibility. And they can even take your life. But one thing they can never get their hands on is the eternal and everlasting reward with Jesus Christ forever and ever. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Number five. Much of our failure to feel motivated to proclaim the gospel is due to the fact that we do not understand how our evangelism fits within the Great Commission. We don't know how it fits within God's plan for history. We we see evangelism merely as sort of like this sort of unseemly duty of the Christian life that we want to hide from public view. We're not exactly super excited about that. It feels more like a grudgery obligation. But you see, when we feel about evangelism in that, in that way, it's because we've, we've missed. We don't understand how evangelism fits. It's so much more than just a gritty obligation. Rather, our evangelism is a participation in what God is doing in human history. And what God is doing in human history is obtaining a bride of redeemed souls for his son from every nation. And your evangelism is a part of that story. And the more gripped with history, the more gripped by the fact that history is but the canvas upon which God paints the masterpiece of redemption, the more passionate we will be to proclaim the gospel. Number six, the life-giving, soul-awakening power of the gospel is one of the most compelling motivations for evangelism. In other words, the scriptures themselves and not the power of your argumentation is the life-giving instrument used to awaken sinners to saving faith in Christ. Because you remember Romans 1.16, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is, it is, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek To be a gifted evangelist, you don't have to be a gifted evangelist. You just need to let the line of the gospel out of its cage and let it do the work. Number seven, when you tremble at the reality of eternal hell, then you will be more motivated in your evangelism. Now, I know that hell is not the only motivation for evangelism. No one's saying that, but it is a legitimate one. And see, when the heart no longer feels the truth of hell, listen very carefully, when the heart no longer feels the truth of hell, the gospel passes from good news to merely just news. When that happens... The intensity of joy is blunted and the spring of love dries up. Therefore, we must feel the truth of hell. And number eight, less of a motivation, more of a wake-up call. And I say this carefully, but if you have zero motivation 
to proclaim the gospel. If you just resolve you're just never going to do this, it's not your thing, it's not anything that you're really going to be a part of, you're just refusing to do it, you'll invite people to church, maybe. I just want you to know, if, if that's your mentality, and I need you to search yourselves, even as I say this, if that is your mentality, then you need to explore the possibility that you are not saved yourself. Because, because do, you, do you believe in the wrath to come? Then why do you not seek to warn people about it? And do you believe that sin is eternally destructive and will lead to their eternal ruin and destruction? Do you, do you believe that? Then why do you not seek to dissuade people from it? And do you believe that Christ is a treasure of infinite worth and value and, and beauty? Do, do you believe that? Then why do you not seek to reveal him to others? And do you believe that heaven will be a paradise of infinite joy? Then why, therefore, do you not seek to persuade others to go there? Do you see? Authentic salvation must display at some level passion to see others get saved through the proclamation of the gospel. Otherwise, otherwise, you need to consider this. It may not actually be authentic. And that brings us next to the parable of the missionary enterprise. The parable of the missionary enterprise, verses 35 through 38. And you know, just as well as I, if you've read the gospels, you see that Christ had this unbelievably uncanny ability to take normal, everyday realities that we see and interact with in life without even thinking, and he loved to take those things and turn them on their heads and make them parables and illustrations of heavenly realities, right? He, he was an expert at this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. I have other sheep which are not of this fold, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, right? I mean, he was an expert at this. And that's exactly what Christ does in verses 35 through 38. He uses farming. He uses agriculture as a parable to describe the global plan of God to save sinners from every nation. Look at verse 35. He says, do you not say, disciples, do you not say four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and see the fields that already they are white or ripe for the harvest. So you see what he does, right? He uses a colloquial, cultural expression that everybody used, everybody knew about. He turned it on its head to speak about the global enterprise of God of saving sinners from every nation. And, and you know that he's talking about people and missions and evangelism. Because in verse 36, he talks about gathering fruit for eternal life. He's talking about people here. He's talking about souls here. He's talking about eternal life here. I don't, know if, I don't know if you realize this or not, but we use farming expressions all the time in English, right? We use them all the time. This is the last straw. A spring chicken. Until the cows come home, whatever that means. Grab a bull by the horns. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. And here Christ says, do you not say four months and then comes the harvest? And all that was was a Jewish colloquial way of saying, would you relax, please? Would you just calm down? There's no rush. We got lots of time. Because once you plant the seeds in the ground, there's no avoiding the four months of waiting until the harvest. Just chill out. Relax already. That's what the statement means. And while chilling out and relaxing might be a really good idea for most things in life, when it comes to the Great Commission, it's a terrible idea. It's terrible advice. It doesn't make any sense. Why? Look what Christ says. He says, I know, I know the expression. I know what you're going to say. Four months and then comes the harvest. But I say to you, lift up your eyes and see the fields that already they are ripe for the harvest. The meaning is unmistakable, isn't it? If the field is the world, and it is, and the harvest is people, and it is, today is the day for harvest. 
not tomorrow, not four months from now. Today is the harvest. What, what are you waiting for? Open your eyes. Look at the fields. Look at the nations. Look at the billions of people ready for the harvest. There's no time to lose. Let's go. Let's go. Which doesn't mean easy, but it does mean urgency. So my question for you is, do you not see the fields ready for harvest? Do, do you not see that we are strategically placed in this area, the DFW area, with 8 million people, whose, many of whom, most of whom, whose knowledge of God is sufficient only to send them to hell forever? Do you not see the harvest on your campuses, at your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, sometimes even in your own families? Open your eyes and see the fields of this city, of this state, of this country, of the world, and the billions of lost people just re ready for the harvest, everywhere ripe and ready, waiting to be harvested, just waiting for someone to tell them about Jesus Christ. The question is, who's going to reach them? If not us, then who? What, do, do we get a pass because we're not a big church? And we don't have flashy programs? I mean, do we get a pass for that? Because we can outsource our manufacturing to China and India all we want. I'm actually okay with that. But we cannot, we cannot outsource our privilege to proclaim the gospel to perishing people. Because yes, to be sure, the gospel is good news, but only if it gets there on time. And you know, you know that everyone who's ever had a job, you know that the best day of the week is payday. Not the best day of the week is payday, but for the farmer who he only got paid on harvest day and Christ's point is today is payday. Payday is today. Look at verse 36. He says, already, right now, at this moment, the one who is reaping is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life in order that the one who sows and the one who reaps should rejoice together. You see the people, those who reap, those who sow. Who is that? It's not just missionaries and evangelists. That's you and me and anyone involved in gospel proclamation. We are the sowers. We are the reapers. We rejoice together. And he goes on to say, others have done labor. You are entering into their labor. Some people have already scattered seed. We are coming and we are watering. And that's what our life is of sowing and watering and reaping by sovereign grace. You have to understand the wages are people. The, the work is eternal. There are souls everywhere miserable in their sin on the brink of eternal destruction just waiting for someone to tell them about the incarnation of when God became a man and if someone would really tell them about that tell them the thing that will finally make life make sense oh what a harvest there could be I've prayed for you this week prayed for you that God would use even this text to unleash in this ministry the greatest missions movement our church has ever seen. Is that okay to pray? Is it okay that I don't want this to be theoretical for you or for me? Is it okay to pray that I want us to weep for lost people? Because I'm just telling you, I'm not there. I'm not there yet. I'm more annoyed by people. I don't weep for lost people. Is it okay that I want to see conversions happen here? Not just church transfer growth, which I'm fine with. If you come here from other churches, we want that. We love that too. But in addition to that, we want to see conversions. And is it okay that I want to see you be the ones to reach them? I mean, we are not some ma and pa independent farm out in the middle of nowhere affecting nothing and no one. No, we are a global enterprise of God on a cosmic mission from the king sent from him by him to save hell-bound sinners from eternal woe and despair. That is our mission. That is who we are. We're gathering a harvest for eternal life here. And it is loving and it is dangerous 
and Christ calls it a harvest. So here's my point. I want you to view yourself not first in terms of a mom or a dad or a student or an employee, but I want you to view yourself first as a farmer, which for Jerome would be a farmer, farmer, because he's both. Which brings us finally to the plentiful harvest of Samaritan souls. The plentiful harvest of Samaritan souls, verses 39 through 42. The plentiful harvest of Samaritan souls. And here's what's really interesting. The whole time that Christ is having this conversation with his disciples, which began with a conversation about lunch and quickly progressed to a conversation about the Great Commission, this entire time, this massive crowd of Samaritan souls is working their way to Christ, and all of a the sudden, they arrive. Look at verses 31, 39 through 41. But many of the Samaritans from that city believed in him on account of the word of the woman testifying that he's told me everything I had done. When the Samaritans came to him, therefore, they were asking, begging him to stay with them, and he stayed with them for two days. And many more believed because of the word which he spoke. I mean, imagine what this looked like. Hundreds and hundreds of people coming over the horizon to, to meet him. And the text says, the text says, they showed up already believing. They believed in him sight unseen, which is how Sarah and I bought our first house. We hadn't even seen it yet. We just knew that's what we wanted. We bought it sight unseen. They showed up believing sight unseen. They, woman with the worst reputation in the city, compelled them, convinced them to come out and meet this, meet this Jewish stranger, and they believed that he was the savior of the world, and they hadn't even seen him yet. And when they got there, they sat down, and they heard him preach, and the Greek grammar indicates that they asked him again and again. They begged him to stay, and he did stay. And for two days, he unfolded the mysteries of God and the glory of salvation, the drama of redemption of which he is the center. They got a two-day seminar on the plan of salvation. God himself was the keynote speaker at this impromptu Bible conference in the middle of Samaria. And hundreds and hundreds, almost the entire city, got saved, one of the greatest recorded revivals in redemptive history. And think of it, just think of it, we will meet these Samaritans one day. We will meet them. And we will know them by name. And they're going to explain, they're going to unfold for us these two days of, of sitting there listening to the greatest pastor and preacher and teacher and theologian in the universe unfold for them the glories of redemption. And then we will see worthy is the lamb and what's really interesting in verse 42 we end where we began with the no-name woman at the well the people at the conference they take their time to track down the woman afterwards and they approach her and, and look what they say no longer do we believe on account of your words for we ourselves have heard and we know that this is truly ha soter tu kasmu. This is the savior of the world. And that right there is the very point of the text. Actually, this is Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. My question is, do you want Do you want the unbelievers in your life to say that to you? Do you want people to come to you to whom you have evangelized, to come to you afterwards and say, thank you, thank you for what you said to me because now I know that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Do you want that? Because you can have that, you know. It's, it's there for the taking. I want this to be a church filled with testimonies like this, filled with stories like this of Samaritans coming to saving faith, of adulterers, five-time adulterers, getting rescued and declaring the supremacy of Christ. And to help us be that kind of church, I give you, as promised, seven compelling motivations to finish the mission from the Father. Seven compelling motivations to finish the mission from the Father. Number one, number one. 
The plan of the Father is appetizing. The plan of the Father is appetizing. Think about what we get to be a part of. Think about what it means to be a Christian. It satisfied Christ to tell sinners about himself. It was his feast and his food and his banquet and his meal and his dinner and delight. It was his joy to offer eternal life to lost people. And what I'm saying is, if you want that same joy and satisfaction, and I know you do, then where it is found is when you participate in the mission of the Father. Preach the gospel to perishing people and you will be the happiest person on the face of the planet. Number two, second compelling motivation, the promise of victory is sure. The promise of victory is sure. In other words, the the Great Commission is not a gamble. There's there's no risk involved here. This is not some willy-nilly mad scramble to save sinners. And and we know that. We know that this is going to work out. We know how it's going to end because we've peeked ahead to the end of the book. We know exactly how this thing is going to end. And how it's going to end is souls from every nation worshiping the Trinity. We've seen it. And if that doesn't compel us to give ourselves to the global cause, I don't know. Add to that the fact that the Father has already handpicked those people and inscribed their names in the Lamb's book of life. God the Son already purchased those people. God the Father is not going to go back on His Son's payment. And so this guarantees that our evangelism and our prayerful labors for the Great Commission cannot possibly fail. Number three. Third compelling motivation, the predicament of the nations is terrifying. The predicament of the nations is terrifying. You have to understand that the, the facts do not lie. There are around 3 billion people or 63.3% of the population that has almost zero access or knowledge of Jesus Christ. 63.3% of the population. That's terrifying. And, and we, we should do something about that. Not that we haven't, but we should do something about that compelling motivation number four and actually let me say one thing about that that begins being a part of that mission begins begins right now with the people sovereignly placed in your life and loving them with the gospel you know them they're around you you interface with them you interact with them picture those people in your minds picture those lost people in your minds they're put in your life not for someone else to reach them but for you to reach them And all you've got to do is open your mouth. That's where the mission begins. Fourth compelling motivation. The proclamation of the gospel is the weapon. The proclamation of the gospel is the weapon because remember what was said in verse 41. Not a small detail. Many more believed in him. How? Because of the word which he spoke. This is incredible. The word is the life-giving, eye-opening, heart-awakening instrument that awakens sin-embalmed sinners from their tombs. It has a divine and supernatural light that pierces into the darkness. The point is you don't have to have any extraordinary gift to be used by God this morning. All you have to do is give people the word. Number five. Fifth compelling motivation, the prayers of the church are the power. The prayers of the church are the power because if it is surprising that God uses people to accomplish his work, and that is surprising, it is doubly surprising that he does it in answer to our prayers. Because you realize what prayer is, don't you? Prayers, the wartime radio with which we call the headquarters of heaven for everything we need as the church advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is an instrument for, for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. God advances his plan through the prayers of his people. Prayer by no means is not the only thing we do, but we mustn't do anything without it. I'm asking, I'm asking that you would pray every single day that God would see fit to use this church as a global outpost of joy in a world of despair. 
Number six, almost done. The price of obedience is suffering. The price of obedience is suffering. Because it may, it may cost you your life. And I am on a mission here this morning to recruit you or maybe better to re-recruit you into the most loving and dangerous cause in the universe. And you see, the reason why those three billion people in the world are unreached is because they're hard and they're difficult and they're dangerous and they don't want you to come. And if you do, they'll send you home in a body bag. As someone said, all the easy groups, people groups have already been taken. And I call this a motivation and not a detraction because God promises that he will reward you for suffering for his son, which is what I mentioned earlier, but this is the seventh compelling motivation. The prize at the end is satisfying. The prize at the end is satisfying. Some of you, they will betray. And some of you, they will kill, but not a hair of your head will perish. Christ said that in Luke 21 when referring to suffering for his global cause. And what he meant was all they can do is kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. And we need to be, we need to be compelled by the gospel logic found in the text because, again, Christ will reward you for suffering for his global cause. Blessed are those who have been persecuted on account of righteousness. Blessed are you when they reproach you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For great is your reward in heaven. But you see, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that is never more true than when it comes to giving your life to preach the gospel to perishing people. So I close with this. I meant what I said. I meant what I said, that I, I have asked the Lord to, to use even this text that would unleash the greatest missions movement this church has ever seen. Whether he does that or not is up to him, but I figured I might as well ask that God would unleash in us a missionary zeal to be a part of reaching the three billion unreached people in the world who have no or zero, close to zero knowledge of Jesus Christ. Thousands of people you see in your life every single day. And yes, to be sure, the mission is impossible. It is impossible as fallen, fragile, fallible people, it, it, not to mention really dangerous, but it is also invincible. It is certain. It is guaranteed. This is going to happen. And not only that, the mission is a feast. The mission is a delight. The mission is a joy. Do not say, I beg you, four months and then the harvest. Do not say, I beg you, well, when I retire, then the harvest. Do not say, well, when my life gets a little less chaotic and crazy and busy, then comes the harvest. Do not say, well, when I get married and get established with a family, then comes the harvest. Do not say, when I get financially stable, do not say those things. Because right now, at this very moment, the fields of the nations are ready. The global harvest of eternal souls is today. Let's pray. Oh Christ, none of us match up, and that's not even the point. We all fall short, and that's not even the point. The point is, Christ, you are glorious, and you are incredible, and you are exhilarating, and you are a treasure of infinite worth, and you have saved us, and you have sent us back into the world on a mission. And you give us the word to empower us. You give us local churches to send us. So, Lord, I pray that this church would be a sending agency, that we would view ourselves, all of us, 
in a very real sense as missions, Lord, because the only difference between us and missionaries who go overseas is that, is that they need a passport to do so. We, we may, we must do so even here, even now. Empower us, strengthen us, give us zeal, give us passion, give us ultimate Adam-charged delight in you and that it would compel us to be like that notorious sinner in Samaria who opened her mouth and declared the truth. Oh Christ, we give you thanks. I give you thanks for this church right here and what a blessing they are and pray that you would continue to work in our midst in such a way that you alone would get the glory, that the only explanation would be a sovereign God doing the supernatural. In Christ's name.